Well, I'd like to welcome everyone who's downloaded this podcast. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 3, just a couple of verses, and we're going to look at a lot of the Bible in the next few minutes. And uh, we're going to try something new. We're going to try and put a bit of the Bible on the wall. And uh, so hopefully we'll be able to do that. Matthew chapter 3 and the story of the baptism of Jesus. 3 and verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment... Heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting, that means landing, on him. And a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I don't know if ever you noticed this before. But just in that tiny couple of verses there, we have each uh, person of the Trinity uh, taking some part. Jesus is baptized in the water. The Spirit is uh, coming to land on him. And John the Baptist sees it. Jesus sees it. Maybe the crowd don't see it. I often wondered, you know, when I first read this story, if a dove flew from the sky and landed, and it just looked like a dove. It wasn't a dove. It just looked like a dove. Uh, I'd have thought the crowd would have run for the hills. They saw that. But only Jesus saw this, and John the Baptist saw it. And the Father speaks and says, This is my son. And in this, just this little story... We have all uh, three members of the Trinity involved. And what I want to do today is to do something which really is quite impossible. That is, I want to talk about the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the problem with talking about the Trinity is that I don't understand it. And let me tell you, if I don't understand it, there's not much chance of anyone who hears me understanding it either. You ever heard a bad preacher? A bad preacher is normally someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about. Uh, And sometimes you get bad preachers and they carry on preaching because they see people taking notes. And they think, well, I must be saying something good. People are taking notes because people are writing out recipes for cakes and things. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but I want to do something today which is sort of impossible, which is to try to explain the, the unexplainable, really. Which is how it is that God is one God and yet three persons. And I wanted to do this because... In my 20-odd years, longer than that now, being in church, I never heard anyone teach on this ever before. And people were told about the Trinity, just expected to believe it, really. But no one ever tried to explain it. And so I'm going to try 
but I need to tell you now that I may not succeed terribly well. What can we, uh, what can we know about God from the pages of the Bible? First of all, let's look in Job and, and uh, chapter 11, and let's see if this comes up. Wonderful. Here's something about, here's something about God from the Bible. It says this, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty, says Job 11 and verse 7. They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? (coughs) They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. What Job is saying is, speaking to people, he says that God cannot be understood. He cannot be understood. And so this kind of brings me a little bit of comfort because it means that as we try to look at the Trinity, and let's look at Romans 11.33 as well, as we try to look at the Trinity, there's a sense in which if we don't understand how it works, then that's sort of all right. Because God cannot be x-rayed and, and, you know, like like a human person can be. God cannot be DNA'd exactly. God cannot be, to use a cliche, put in a box at all. And what we know about God, just, just listen to this, what we know about God is what he has chosen to reveal to us. That doesn't mean that we know everything to know about God. We probably will never know everything there is to know about God. Uh, There's an amazing verse in the book of Revelation where uh, Jesus is being described and it says this, He will write upon them His new name. I love that little verse. The very end of Revelation, probably chapter 19. He will write upon them His new name. What new name is that? We don't know, do we? We don't know it yet. There are things to know about God that will yet be revealed And what we know about him is what he's chosen to reveal. If God doesn't want to reveal it, we can't know it. God is unfathomable. Here in Romans 11.33, here's Paul now getting a bit passionate as he's writing or probably dictating this, this letter to the Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. You somehow cannot handcuff God and somehow understand him. So if the Trinity is strange to us, how God can be one and also three, then it's, that's just it. It's just strange to us. That doesn't mean we can't believe it. There are many things in life I don't understand, but yet I can believe them. Uh, and this is something it, probably where the Trinity falls. So what can we say about God? Let's look at Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. The first thing we want to say about God is that he has stated very clearly that he is one. This is the Shema, uh, known in um, Judaism. The Shema is this statement about God. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. 
Here God is speaking a word into a culture, into a society where there were many, many gods. And people believed in many, many different kinds of gods. As the children of Israel came out of Egypt, Egypt was a place that believed in lots and lots of uh, gods. And, uh, and in, even in New Testament times, as the gospel is preached into the Greek world, they believed in lots of gods, lots of lords, lots of gods. The Romans, for example, had many, many gods. They, were, they, they call it polytheism. It, means you believe in, it doesn't mean you believe in the worship of parrots. It means you believe in many, many gods. You are polytheist. Romans, of course, had household gods. They had gods of even of their own ancestors. The Greeks believed in lots of powers and forces that were involved in the universe. That's why when Paul writes to the uh, Corinthians in that chapter about spiritual gifts, he says that time and time again, it is by the same Spirit, by the one Spirit that these gifts are being revealed. It's not lots of different spirits. It is one Spirit One God, one Lord, one baptism, one Father of us all. And here, this verse coming from ancient Israel, a time when there were many gods in the Egyptian story, there would have been the God of the River Nile, for example. There would have been the God in people's houses. God showed himself to be stronger than all these powers, even if they should even exist, of course. They existed sometimes just in the minds of the people. So here is the truth about God. There's one God. One. There's not lots of gods. There's one God. However, in the pages of the Bible, we discover that this oneness needs to be qualified. Because it's certainly true there isn't any more than one God. However, God's manifestation, the way he reveals himself, is in a number of ways. So, let's look, for example, at Genesis chapter 1. The very first chapter of the Bible. The very beginning of of the Bible, the very beginning of creation. And here, we read something really interesting. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Suddenly, God shifts from being one to being plural. Let us make man in our image. Now, that's not something that shows up later. That's not something that Christian bishops of the 3rd century A.D. invented. You read all sorts of stuff about how the church invented the Trinity. They certainly did not. Right on the first page of your Bible, the very first page, there's a sense in which God is plural. I once read someone say, ah, well, it's not God being plural. What he's saying, he's talking to the angels. Let's make man in our image. I tell you what. You don't look to me like you've been made in the image of an angel. Let me tell you that. We're not made in the image of an angel. We're made in the image of God. That's a biblical truth running through from Genesis all the way through to the maps. It's the truth. And then in Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah is in the presence 
uh, of the Lord. He's seeing God upon the throne. He's seeing one God upon the throne. He's not seeing a number of gods. He's seeing one God. When in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6, he says, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And then comes this amazing verse. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And just like in Genesis chapter 1, there comes this strange plural moment of God. We're made in the likeness of God, in, in our likeness. And now, when it, so that's the creation. And now in terms of mission. Who will go for, who will go for us? How can one God speak in a plural form? I tell you, if you were a, an old, if you were living in Old Testament times, and you had your Old Testament, you know, uh, from Wesley Owen, and, uh, you were thumbing through it, these verses would have really confused you. How can God be more than, 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 than one. He says he's one, and yet he's not just one. He is plurality. Even the name of God used in the Old Testament, which is Elohim, which is uh, normally translated in our English, God. It's the word God, G-O-D, God. Elohim is actually a plural um, noun. In, in Hebrew, if you want to if you want to pluralize something, you add im at the end. Uh, today, we would, in English, you would have one horse and two horses. You would add an s. But in Hebrew, you would have a horse and you would have a horseim. Uh, you know, I'm playing with, a, I'm, of course, I'm conflating languages. But I'm just saying, that's how you would make it plural. So you have a seraph, one of them, and then you have seraphim. Two of them, or more than one of them, right? Nephilim, giants in the land. Not one, many. And then, amazingly, the, the, the name of God, which is El, E-L-L, is used in a plural form all the way through. Elohim. Now, it doesn't mean that it should be translated gods, but what I'm saying is even the word used in the Old Testament had a sense of plurality about it, as though there was a bit more to God than just, than just one. Okay, and now we come over into the New Testament. Matthew 28 is a good place to start. And this is the baptismal formula. This is Jesus saying, okay, I want you to go. I want you to make disciples. And suddenly, Jesus throws in, no warning really, <laughs> no warning, he just throws in this amazing... Uh, Statement here, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, name, not names, name, the name, not names, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. That just came out of left field from the flanks. Suddenly. What, and, and, you know, if you'd been a disciple, you might have been on the mountain there in Galilee going, what are you talking about? Because God is one. We say it, we say the Shema, we're good Jewish boys. We say the Shema. 
every, every Shabbat and every festival. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And of course, in the, the Ten Commandments, it's very clear. God is one. And yet, here comes the announcement of this revelation that is, that's not, uh, it's just not that it doesn't appear in the Old Testament, but it kind of appears in hints rather than in full, in full manifestation. And now we learn. And then Paul, of course, in the end of Second Corinthians, and chapter 13, I think it's verse 14, he, he, he wants to bless them at the end of his letter, the end of his very stressed, slightly grumpy, complaining letter. Mind you, he had had a bad time. And as he finishes his uh, letter, he says this, which, of course, if you're a good C of E boy or girl, you'll know this really well. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be, be with you all forevermore. Amen. So Paul, where did Paul get this information? How did he know this? He received it from the risen Christ. That God was now making clear what had been kind of a little unclear for a few, uh, a few centuries, maybe a few millennia. But although he was one, yet he was three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now throughout the, throughout the New Testament particularly, but it works just as well in the Old Testament, normally the word God is normally connected with the Father. And normally the word Lord is normally connected with Jesus. And the word God and the word Lord are both connected with the Holy Spirit. But to say that this is a law, that, you know, whenever we read God, it means the Father. Whenever we see the word Lord, it means Jesus. That's not, that's not a, a fixed law at all, because it's very fluid, as we'll see in just a moment. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's really interesting because this is exactly how God made us. Let's have a look at a verse from the epistle to the Thessalonians. Where God, through the Apostle Paul, is giving this little piece of information again. Paul is praying for them. And he says, may God himself, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may God himself... The God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Please say that. Through and through. Yeah. Amazing. What he's saying is, every bit of you, may you be sanctified in every single department of your life. By the way, just a little side alley. Aren't we really good at being sanctified in one area? but not sanctified in another. Can you say amen? Isn't that true? And God wants us to be sanctified through and through. And then, as though to illustrate this, he goes on to explain what he means. What do we mean by through and through? What do we mean by the, the entire human being? And then he explains it, that people are made up of spirit 
soul and body. Uh, of course, when you hear this expression in the world, people always say, oh, body, soul, and spirit. That's not, that's not, that's not in the Bible. It's spirit, soul, and body. You know, don't you, that what you really are is a spirit. You are a spirit. You have a mind or a soul. You also have a body. But you are not a body that has a spirit somewhere. You are a spirit that possesses a mind and a body. And again, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but maybe some of you will like this thought. The goal of your Christian life is to put your spirit back in charge of your mind and your body. Can I say that again? The goal of your Christian life is to put your spirit back in full command of your soul, your mind, if you like, your emotions, and your body. Uh, I remember seeing an illustration once of a piece of Battenberg cake. Now, I probably need to explain that for the benefit of international listeners. A Battenberg cake, which is marvellous, by the way. I feel my body is not in full control here. Or maybe it is. My, uh, a piece of Battenberg cake, is, uh, 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 it has a marzipan uh, um, cover. Is that right? And then you have sponge, four squares of sponge. And then there's a cross bit, which is jam. Marzipan, uh, sponge, and jam. Hmm. I'm thinking about this afternoon now. My mind's been going off on a tangent. Actually, it's horrible stuff, isn't it? Anyway, um, it wouldn't be enough. If you were going to make Mars, if you were going to make uh, Battenberg cake, it wouldn't be enough to say, I've got the marzipan, I've got the sponge, I've got the jam, but it doesn't really matter in what order it goes. You imagine instead of those squares being uh, sponge, you imagine if they were marzipan, thick marzipan. Now, if you love marzipan, you just died and went to heaven, I know. But most people probably don't want to put four chunks of marzipan down their gullet. And imagine if instead of jam being in the middle, that was a bit of sponge, and then jam was wrapped around it. Now, I know I'm inventing a new dish right here on the spot. The point is, that it's not enough to know the ingredients of the cake. They have to be in the right order. We meet Christians all the time whose body is controlling their life. That's why they jump into bed with someone they shouldn't. We meet Christians all the time whose mind or emotion is in charge of their life. That's why they lose their temper. That's why they're a nightmare to live with or, you know, whatever it may be. Because their mind is in charge. The goal of the Christian life is to put the spirit in charge. Anyway, I digress too much and made us think of lunch. When God said, I'm going to make you in my image, already, already, the human being is three. But do you know what would be weird if someone came up to me and said, how's your body doing today? Well, not many people ask me that. How's your mind doing at the moment? 
It's okay. A bit cloudy. How's your spirit doing, brother? Well, maybe someone strange might ask me that. But you're more likely to say, how are you? <laughs> you're not likely to, to, to decomp... Uh, you, know, you, you know the word I want. Decompartmentalize. Is that right? You don't know anyway, do you? You're not likely to decompartmentalize someone. Because it's all one, isn't it? If you've got a bad back, I tell you, that could well affect your mind. You lose your temper, you're not so jolly. It's affecting your emotions. If you have a broken heart, you can end up in hospital for stress in your body. Because it's all connected, isn't it? So people are walking around and they have a body and they have a mind. But the Bible says that those who don't know the Lord, their spirit is dead in transgression and sin. That's why when the Holy Spirit comes, He brings our spirit alive. That doesn't mean the spirit isn't there. It's there, but it's locked up. And sometimes people pursue things, the occult. They pursue other religions. They pursue spiritual experiences because they know they have a spirit, but they they can't get it to come alive. Only in Jesus Christ does it come alive. Can you say Amen. So when God said, I'm going to make you in my image, he already made us three. But those three are so interlinked that it's very hard to split them apart. That's why in, we don't have this verse for the screen, but that's why in a, uh, when Paul is writing about the Word of God, he says the Word of God is so sharp, it's so living, it's so active, that it can actually divide the soul and the spirit. Because people would say, well, what's the difference between my spirit and my soul? And, and even Paul says it, they are so closely linked that it takes a really sharp sword to be able to divide them. So we're made in his image. We're three. All of us are three. How are the three of you? That's why when we die, when we die, Our spirit does not die and goes to be with the Lord. We're going to have a funeral on on Tuesday here. Please pray for me, particularly as I handle all this this week. I've got quite a big week coming up with that. And uh, we're just burying a body, a body that now is no longer in use. Our dear brother got out of the car. He was driving the, the car of his body. And he's now on foot on the streets that are golden. He's left his car behind. He doesn't need that body anymore. Okay. So God has made us to be like him. Now, let's look for a moment at these three parts, if you like, these three persons of the Trinity. The most easy one to do is the Father. Uh, God, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There is, there is God the Father. Uh, we'll look at how, what they do in just a moment. The second character would be Jesus the Son. Philippians 2 is maybe a good illustration of this. Uh, who being in the very nature of God, this is speaking about Jesus, he didn't consider being equal with God as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself and he became in appearance as a man. 
Jesus Christ became a man. We have it very clearly in John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus here not only being called Lord, but here being called God. Then in Colossians 1, and this verse is split into two here. Uh, he's the image of the invisible God. Jesus uh, is the image of God. You can't see God the Father. You can't see Him. But Jesus is the image of a God who is invisible. You want to know what God is like? Then you look at Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. And then, uh, let's move on to the, to, the, to the Holy Spirit. Let's go to, to Acts chapter 5. So we have the Father, we have the Son, and then we have the Holy Spirit in, in Acts chapter 5. And, and here, a very interesting set of verses where Ananias and Sapphira tell lies about an offering and they'd never come back next week. They are slain in the Spirit with no one to catch them. They are taken out and buried because they made a, a lie about the offering they were, they were giving. But here's something really interesting from the pages of this, uh, pages of this uh, passage in Acts. He says, how is it you've allowed Satan to so fill your heart that you have lied to who? The Holy Spirit. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then if you come down to the very last verse there, verse 4, the very end of it, it says, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. So here the Holy Spirit is being called God, just like the Father was called God, just like Jesus was called God. Genesis 1 and verse 2, about the, the Holy Spirit hovering over the, the, the waters. Who made this world? Was it the Father? Uh, was it the Son? Was it the Holy Spirit? The Bible says that all three were involved in the creation of the world and of the universe. And one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. So here is an example of the Holy Spirit being called the Lord. The Lord is the Spirit. And we like this verse because it talks about having freedom and uh, because of the Spirit of the Lord. But just those first few lines. The Lord is the Spirit. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, the reason... For God saying in Genesis 1, let's make man in our image. The reason for God speaking to Isaiah and saying, who will go for us? Who's going to go for us? It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the difficulty with this is that people say, well, how can this be? Because then we end up really with three gods. This doesn't really... This may not help you entirely, but you mustn't think of this as one plus one plus one equals three. It's far better to think of it as one times one times one equals one. They are multiples of each other. They are not 
three different gods. The Lord our God is one. But revealing himself in these three distinct forms, these three distinct people. Now, just to sort of uh, uh, draw to some kind of close with this, let me just talk about how these characters work. What, what do they do? Are they exactly the same? Or are they different? And we're going to see that they are that they are different. They are different. Now, first of all, uh, we, have, we, we, we have the Father. We have the Father. The Father, I've described, just written some notes here, the Father is like the senior partner. He's the senior partner. He's the giver of the divine instructions. He's sort of in charge. He's in charge. The Father is the one who, now I'm going to put this in very human terms, and all of this is not an exact science, but if you were going to put the balance somewhere, who's in charge, we would say the Father is the one who's in charge. He does the thinking. He's the one who gives the orders, if you like. Now that doesn't mean that he is superior to the Son or to the Spirit. Let me give you an example. If we had a school teacher here, and we had a school teacher, we can have this screen go, go blank now probably. If we had a school teacher, and they came and stood here, and next to the school teacher stood their pupil, one of their pupils. I'd ask you this question. Okay, are these two people equal? And hopefully your answer would be, yes, of course they're equal. One is not more important than the other. Just because this person is a teacher and 45 doesn't mean they are superior in value as a human being, to the pupil who maybe is only ten. So are they equal? And the answer is yes, they are equal. But if I asked you this, in the classroom, they are equal, but are they the same? Your answer would be, hopefully, no. They are not the same. Because one has a different job to the other. What about you and a policeman? Are you equal? Yes. But when you're speeding down the A14 and his light flashes blue and you have to make your decision, do I brake or speed on? You're equal with the cop. You have equal value. You're both humans. But are you the same? In that scenario, no, you're not the same. He's got authority and you have got a fine. Your boss at work, if you have a supervisor, maybe you are the supervisor, 
But everyone has a boss somewhere. Are you equal with your boss? Yes. Are you the same? Nope. You're not the same. Not while you're at work, you're not. Because you have different roles to fulfill. Oh, shall I tell it as it is? What about, what about man and wife? Are they equal? Yes. Are they the same? No. They have different roles. They have different, it doesn't, doesn't mean if you follow the biblical teaching that the, the husband, not the man, but the husband is the head of his house, that doesn't mean he's superior to his wife, but it means he has a different function to his wife. Your children are equal to you, but they are not the same as you. Not in the house. When they're older, they might be different. They'll be looking after you. But you're different. Is the Father the same as the Son and the Holy Ghost? Yes. Yes. Are they equal? Yes. But are they exactly the same in terms of function? No. The Father is the one who gives the instructions. That doesn't make Him superior but it means he has the greater function of them. Then we have the the Son of God. The Father is the one who thinks everything through. He comes up with the plans. He initiates the plans. He gives the orders. Go and do this. And he receives honor and worship. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, he is, I put here in my notes, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Amen. He's the Savior Messiah. I put here, He's the doer. He's the one who does the Father's instructions. The Father says, go and save the people from their sins. Jesus says, I will go and I will do it. I will be the image of the invisible God. When the people see me, said Jesus, if if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he is the one who makes God known, John 1.18. He makes God known to the people. He's the doer. He gets his hands dirty, if you like. He's the one who came down to earth. He's the one who came and died on the cross. He's the one who made God known to the world. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah, and he is worthy of worship and honor, just like the Father. The Holy Spirit, I've called him God's agent on earth now. He is different to the Father and the Son. He is equal to them, but he's different. He lives on earth now. Two thousand years ago, When Jesus came to the earth, Jesus said, Father, I'll go and do your bidding. I'll go and do your bidding, Father. I'll go and, I'll go and save the world. But I just have one request. I want the Spirit to come with me. I want Him to help me. Without His power, I can't do it. And here we have the truth about the Trinity. The Father gives the instructions. The Son fulfills the instructions. And the Spirit is the power to do those things. Can you say Amen? He's the power behind it. He empowered the Lord Jesus Christ. In the verse we read right at the beginning. 
He's the power behind things. But he only does what the Father tells him to do. He only does what the Son tells him to do. When he does a miracle on earth today, we say, praise God, praise the name of Jesus. Because he is fulfilling the will of Jesus in the earth, both in Bible times and now. He has an amazing postal address, by the way. Amazing. The Father lives in heaven and he always has. The Son changed his address for about 30 years or more. And for a while, if you wanted to talk to the Son, you couldn't really do it in the prayer room. You had to go find him in Galilee. Because he lived there. Now the Son lives in heaven. But the Holy Spirit, he has an amazing Postal address. You know what it is, don't you? Inside you. Inside me. He now lives on the inside of us. He's not out there. He is here. Jesus said, the Spirit is coming. He's going to be with you. And He's going to be in you. It's true that the Holy Spirit is with us. And He's also within us. Can I say it again? He's with us. And He is within us. That's the biblical truth. The Spirit is God's agent on the earth. He comes to live inside people. He's the power behind things. And He fulfills the mission of the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit doesn't do anything by Himself. Absolutely not. He fulfills the will of the Father and of the Son. That's why if you're going to be Spirit-filled, there's one sure way of knowing that you are Spirit-filled. And that is that you do the will, not of yourself, but of the Father and of the Son. I'm not uh, making nothing of speaking in tongues as an evidence of Spirit baptism. I believe it wholeheartedly. But I've seen plenty of tongue-speaking people split churches and live like demons. Not too many amens, but it is true. No, the real evidence, lifelong evidence, of being a Spirit-filled man or woman is to do the will of the Father and of the Son. He so filled you that His agenda is now your agenda. His will is now your will. There's something amazing. I want you to look just finally at three or four verses that appear on the screen. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Jesus is speaking in these verses and he says this, I and the Father are one. You've got to understand, for these Jewish people who heard him say this in John chapter 10, it's no wonder they wanted to kill him. Because it was utter utter blasphemy unless it was true. If I came to you today and said, I just want you to know something, I am the way, the truth and the life, you really ought to throw me out the door. It would take a few of you, but you ought to do it. If I said to you, I'm the light of the world, I'm the only way to the Father, as soon as anyone talks like that, they're they're crazy, cult leader or gone mad. And And they're blaspheming. But Jesus wasn't blaspheming because he was telling the truth. He really was one 
with the Father. So that's John chapter 10. But then look at chapter 14 and verse 28. Jesus says, the end of this verse, he says, but the Father is greater than I. So how can it be that in one verse he says the Father and he are one, and in another verse he says the Father is greater than him because of their function, just like the school teacher and the kid, just like the policeman and you in your car. What he's saying is the Father is the one I'm submitting to. He willfully submits himself to the Father. And the Holy Spirit has something of the same mission over in John chapter 16 and verse 14. Jesus speaking here about the Holy Spirit. And he says this, the Holy Spirit will bring glory to me. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to bring glory to himself. He comes to bring glory to Christ. So that the Son of God might be magnified. The Son of God might be lifted up. Let me finish on one of these uh, mics here. Praise God. Let's look at one more verse. First Corinthians chapter 15. And why don't we turn to this one? First Corinthians 15. I will read a passage and then, we've, and then we're done. In 1 Corinthians 15, one of the longest verses in the whole Bible, we read something of the future. Something of the future. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. Let's come to verse 24. Paul writes about something that's going to happen at the end. He says, then the end will come when he, that's Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. Verse 25, he's speaking about Jesus, the Son. He says, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. He's saying at this time, what God the Father has done, is he has put the universe at the absolute supreme command of Jesus Christ, his Son. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. At this time, Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. Charismatics read that and think the authority has been given to them. It just hasn't. Read, just read the Bible. It's not been given to them. It's been given to him. All authority has been given to him. And we have authority for as long as he is with us. Anyway, that's another sermon, isn't it? But he's the Lord of heaven and earth now. And he must reign, verse 25, until all his enemies are under his feet. 
And then verse 27, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything put under him, it clearly doesn't mean God. That's the Father who's put everything under Christ. And verse 28 is where I'm heading to. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God, that's God the Father, may be all in all. What he's saying is right now, right now, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. It's at his name that we receive our salvation, our freedom, our forgiveness, our healing, our deliverance. It's in his mighty name. There's no name like the name of Jesus. And at this time, the Holy Spirit wants to bring glory to Jesus. The Father has bestowed a name to him that's above every other name. But as we read the final pages of the history of the world, we find that when all things are complete, Jesus will turn to his Father and give back to him that supremacy again. So that, verse 28, God maybe all in all. I hope that over these last 49 minutes that's helped you to understand a little bit more about how God can be one and how he can also be three. One and three are not the same. There's an element in which it is, like we read right at the beginning, it's unfathomable. The one thing I'll say now is that the Spirit of God, whose postal address is not heaven, but earth, He is here now. He brings Jesus into the midst of us. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high and yet by the Spirit He is in the midst of us. Our great King, this great Lord of heaven and earth, by the Spirit is standing in the center of this room. 